0: Hey there. This is Todd, your host for The Bruised. Welcome. We're doing episode eight Church. Ideal or real? Which would you rather? So, the podcast today actually will be an audibilization of an article that I wrote less than a year ago. The purpose for inserting this topic here is mostly because recently, for the first time in many years, I began regularly attending the adult Sunday school classes of my local congregation. Previous to that, I had been serving in a capacity where I was mostly working with the youth during that hour. Until it was decided that they didn't want me influencing the kids anymore. Just kidding. But isn't the way you most always feel when being released from a church calling? Basically, dear volunteer, your services are no longer required. Anyway. Back to Sunday school, so since February of this year, the experience of others attending uh, those Sunday school classes has been altered somewhat because I've been there. Though in each hour I limit my comments to one or two points, those particular points are actually not what most are used to in that environment. So even the short-time listener of the podcast is probably familiar with the style of questions or ideas that I propose. And they're not your run-of-the-mill religious rhetoric. However, they're not meant as demeaning or even diminutive towards the gospel. But instead, compared to customary church dialogue, my thoughts speak less to the plan's happiness and more towards its meaning. Thoughts that give more purpose to God's actions and character in all times of our lives. So there's been mixed reactions to my contributions in Sunday school. On more than one occasion, I've received unappreciative feedback. Generally, it doesn't settle well with some people to propose Pharaoh was doing what he believed morally right in enslaving Israel, he being the living incarnation of God in his own culture. I've also received responses of genuine interest and gratitude for a different outlook on God's plan from some people. But my favorite is actually from local leadership. I'm pretty sure that I've landed on some sort of risk for inactivity list in ward council. But overall, most of those classes don't understand why my comments don't fall in line with the normative like fast, pray, read your scriptures, serve your fellow man. And knowing that some who attend these classes listen to this podcast I felt it best to share my longhand reasoning here, making them aware that I do share the comments that I do so that those who are or will encounter trials of dread in their life might easier
1: at those dreaded times understand the wisdom of God. So with that said, I'll go ahead and dive into the article.
0: Several years ago, Brooke Romney wrote an article that appeared in the Desert News titled, Why We Are Taking the Fun Out of Life. In that article, Brooke spoke of the frequent prayers her children gave that innocently requested the Lord bless them that they might have fun. As she analyzed the source of this common request, she realized that as parents, as neighbors, as a culture, we heavily emphasized the fun of life. She then began to take particular note that when one of her children did not have fun at an event, she felt a significant sense of something wrong, and then felt it in her nature to actually then remedy the unfunness. Throughout her article, then, she goes on to describe how her family decided to remedy the fun rut and to develop more substantial relationships, not wholly based on fun. I actually attended high school with Brooke, and she had the brightest smile of all of our friends and was always a source of happiness. By contrast, I was the moody and tired, sarcastic individual who did not have the energy or maturity to think much beyond himself. And despite my demeanor, very few of my friends knew I struggled severely with social anxiety and depression. Heavy involvement in school sports and music programs probably provided a good cover. However, those I interacted with who did not know of my struggles would often perceive in me that something was always… off. I'm fascinated by Brooke's perceptions. It's clear that the girl who would smile at everyone in the halls of BHS was also gleaning valuable social wisdom, and a wisdom that I could fully appreciate despite my contrasting demeanor. It's interesting that just after high school, I began to perceive a congruent characteristic in my community and church culture that Brooke identifies in her article. A fun, happy,
1: centric life expectation. My wife, Lindsay,
0: attended the same high school, though one year later than Brooke and me. Lindsay could have been considered the social equivalent to Brooke for her own BHS class. Lindsay shares Brooke's outlook on her community's culture. She's actually the one who brought Brooke's article to my attention. Yet for Lindsay, the perception was only slowly gained by living with me
1: for 20 years. Now, Lindsay completed her
0: own awakening to our cultural love affair, if you will, with fun on a particular Saturday night. Because of her position in our church, she had, that Saturday, voluntarily spent six plus hours in leadership and training meetings the last two of which I actually accompanied her. On our drive home, she was uncommonly quiet. She'd uncharacteristically requested we'd leave five minutes before the close of the meeting so that we didn't get caught up in the post event socializing. She was understandably tired, and I learned long ago that at moments like this, it was best for me to keep my remarks about a meeting's topics to myself. But when Lindsay finally spoke,
1: it was she that was making this infraction. And this was a first.
0: She used a specific phrase, no substance. She voiced frustration that she had just been hours away from her children, only to listen to presentations that offered no substance. She continued with a description of the redundant topic matter, the motivational rhetoric, And the predictably out of context scriptures that diluted the discourse. It was as if I was listening to my own thoughts coming out of my wife's mouth. Of the many years we've been married, Lindsay had never been the spouse instigating that idea that good intentioned yet empty teachings were harmful. That was usually me. Nevertheless, here she was, a God committed, trial refined, true to the faith Christian, having the revelation that preoccupation with an emotional paradise is our grand communal pacifier. The comparative timing of our enlightenment was curious, as was my concurrent period of suicidal ideation, because it was not long after this Saturday evening and not long after I crawled out of treatment-resistant depression that the world was consumed by the COVID-19 lockdown pandemic. The world was now experiencing the social distancing to which our family had become quite adept. Social distancing had been our family's jam for the previous two years. In March of 2020, quarantine lockdowns began to be enforced in Nevada and many other places. At that point in time, Lindsay and I began fielding texts, emails, and phone calls, even home visits, multiple times a week from people newly experiencing anxiety and depression. Because of our openness about my mental health condition, this was a role that we had practiced long before lockdown just not to this extent. Even at work, once we were allowed to reopen our pediatric dental practice, I found myself spending significant time with patients and parents discussing mental health problems they and their loved ones were experiencing. In several instances, I perceived a mental health struggle by a drastic change in the appearance of a patient's teeth. In these cases, the stress of the year had actually induced bulimic episodes on these fragile teenage girls who had previously had beautiful, healthy smiles. In these cases, my immediate reaction when first seeing the teeth of these young women was to look at their mothers to get a sense of whether they already understood what was going on. And without fail, each mother's eyes were already
1: filled with the tears of helplessness.
0: It felt insane that all of a sudden, Lindsay and I were emotionally ahead of the game. As the world descended into chaos, many turned to us for help, knowing we were comfortable in chaos. Far stranger, we suddenly experienced gratitude for the two years of hell we'd endured. Strange in that what had personally been an unbearable horror suddenly became something holy.
1: This hell and horror had erupted in
0: January of 2018. Some of this next bit is a bit redundant, as I've talked about this on the podcast before, but again, this is from an article written last summer. This hell and horror had erupted in January 2018. The antidepressant I had been taking for nearly 20 years suddenly became ineffective. I began to experience crippling panic attacks. Several other treatment approaches were attempted over a few months but my anxiety and depression continued to rage. My diagnosis was upgraded from major depression to treatment-resistant depression. I quickly began to find many aspects of my life overwhelming and I therefore reduced my workload, cutting my time in half spent at my pediatric dental practice. And I all but eliminated any social interaction outside of my immediate family. I also asked to be released from my church position in our congregation's bishopric. It was at this point that Lindsay and I found ourselves in what we be believed to be a generally unique situation. Many people in similar scenarios quietly fall into a less active, inactive state of church attendance. However, our family had been very open and honest about my mental health experience. My pediatric dental background did give me the ability to research the medical literature and become confidently well informed on the issues I dealt with. Then Lindsay as my main caregiver had also developed inspired techniques to help our family cope with my weakness. We were also aware of many people in our congregation and adjoining congregations, especially youth who were struggling emotionally. We had provided consultation and encouragement for those who were looking to find treatment for themselves or their children many
1: times. In addition to all of this,
0: through 18 years of our marriage, we'd gained a strong testimony of the gospel. We'd been the recipients of several unique and profound interactions with the Spirit, which had cemented our resolve to the Savior. All of these things considered, we knew, no matter how hard it became, we needed to remain church-active for all that we watching, including our four children. And so it was at that point that I sunk Into the depths of despair while on full display to our church family on a weekly basis. The worst two to three hours of my week. So, there are some common complaints that are regularly reported by people of my faith who experience depression. The LDS Church has found several symptoms to be abundant and impactful enough to actually address on their mental health webpage. I have found these to be consistent with my own experience, and many that I have conferred with have reported the same one a feeling of being abandoned by god two a diminished ability to serve and therefore a feeling of diminished individual worth
1: three an inability to fill the spirit for me these
0: spiritual and emotional ulcers would inflame for the two to three hours of church every Sunday. Listening to talks professing a plan of happiness were repulsive. Conversations on the Holy Ghost were especially bad. It would seem that most believe, or at least most vocal church members believe, that the only reason a person could not feel the Spirit when desired would be as a result of sin. Any opposing view to this outlook, even when scriptural precedence was given, was consistently met with some well intended rhetoric, such as all we need to do is remember. Asking you shall receive, knocking it shall be opened to you. Or, remember, we're promised that we can have the Spirit with us as a constant companion through covenants made with God. Trying to process these sincere phrases in the indefinite hell in which I existed was dreadful. Because I had fasted, I'd prayed, I'd worked for reprieve through medications, infusions, electroconvulsive therapy. Only to digress. I was keenly aware that the gift of the Spirit was far more complicated than simply ask and receive. The dread I experienced was purely based on the established culture in which church members were customarily practicing their faith. The well intended optimistic rhetoric inherent to LDS Christian vernacular didn't cease because my dopamine and serotonin levels were deviated. That happy bus just kept rolling on. What did cease to exist was the filter by which I'd previously viewed the culture. God had actually withdrawn my pacifier. Likewise, as my main caregiver, Lindsay's pacifying filter also began to disintegrate. It was in this state that Lindsay endured the previously mentioned six hours of customary emotional optimism. Her assessment of that event, now absent her own pacifier, was that it offered no substance. This then begs the question, is aversion to customary church optimism a common experience of Christians who have experienced significant suffering? If no,
1: then we don't need to discuss any further. But if yes, to
0: what can we attribute the aversion? A. Are sufferers who cringe at Sunday vernacular merely too sensitive to appropriately optimistic church dialogue? B. Is customary church dialogue unrealistic when gauged under the genuine trials of life? C. All of the above. Can optimism aversion be attributed to both the compromised emotional coping skills of sufferers, as well as to the severely idealistic dialogue customary to church culture?
1: Obviously, I vote for option C. Knowing
0: that compromised coping skills are a factor. In this scenario. The rest of this essay then focuses on some reasonable examples of idealistic dialogue and a remedy or two for the culture. Let me actually then insert two reasonable experiences from two people I highly respect for the listener to think upon. first experience comes from the thoughts of the 20th century's greatest Christian apologist C.S. Lewis following the death of his wife. The second is my own mother's personal experience, a genuine occurrence just a few weeks following my sister's choking death.
1: In his late work essay, A Grief Observed,
0: the newly widowed C.S. Lewis admits
1: he previously
0: fell well short of understanding God's character. I will provide several of my favorite quotes here today. I'll also provide a link on the webpage. TheBrews.com One may appreciate that my favorite quote is one in which T.S. Lewis sees God and a dentist as comparable in their roles.
1: A Grief of Observed Year of Publishing, 1961
0: T.S. Lewis passed away November 1963 The Year of Publishing, 1961 puts it five years at least After some of his greatest works. Screwtape Letters.
1: The Chronicles of Narnia. Mere Christianity. The Great Divorce. The Problem of Pain.
0: In general, this book is about the grief and trials the author, C.S. Lewis, deals with after the death of his wife, Joy Davidman. This is interesting. When the book was first published, Lewis used a pen name. N.W. Clerk. He did so in the hopes of avoiding identification as the author. It is based on a set of notebooks that Lewis had kept wherein he used to write about his deep sadness upon his bereavement. It was republished under his name only in 1963 after his death. Quote 1. Talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion and I'll listen submissively, but don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect that you don't understand.
1: Quote 2. Knock and it shall be opened, but does knocking mean hammering and kicking the door like a maniac? Quote 3. What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never even been to a dentist? Quote four, not that I am,
0: I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like,
1: deceive yourself no longer.
0: I'll share a second experience now, which is actually my mother's. a genuine occurrence where innocent rhetoric drove its hidden edge into her suffering this is from an interview that i had with her on october of 2020. while listening to her story consider what happens to a similar person who is questioning the existence of god i remember you talking about a really hard part for you after you had lost your daughter jenna um whether it was a week, a couple of months, something. We were in a church meeting uh, a little bit later on. A speaker is up there giving a talk about how her, her child had been saved. But what, what was the scenario there?
2: Well, it was, I think it was, it was all women. So it was either a young women's meeting or a relief setting. meeting it was in the evening and I remember it was still winter. So it was probably January or February after Jana had died. And they had a speaker, and she got up and said that how she had been blessed. That um, I think one of her child, her children. When did Jenna die? Sorry. Just... She died December thirty first okay. the year before. So this was January, or February. So like
0: a month or two removed.
2: Yeah, month or two removed. I don't think it was two. I think it was probably one. It's pretty close. She got up and was talking about how her uh, a toddler was choking, and um, on I think uh, I think it was a penny. I can't remember what it was, but choking on something. And I think the child had passed out and how another child was able to, you know, a child that was older, was able to take and do the Heimlich and save the child. And how they were, I, I, you know, I can't even remember if she was there or not, I don't know. Because I definitely remember there was an older child that saved the toddler that was choking. <laughs> And she said how Heavenly Father had blessed them and saved that child. And how grateful she was that Heavenly Father loved them. And she said something to the effect that that child must have been very, you know, needed to be saved to live a life. And, you know, how Heavenly Father loved that child. And it just hit me so hard. Like, like, Heavenly Father didn't save mine. Did He not love us as much? Did He not love a child as much? And I couldn't—I couldn't help it. I was sitting towards it was in our, our our building, but it was obviously a stake meeting. And I was sitting, with, you know, members of our women that were in our ward. But I just couldn't help it. I just started to sob. I mean, everybody could hear me. I couldn't—I couldn't help it. And I stood up and I just left the meeting. I walked out of the meeting. And I just remember walking out the side doors of the chapel. <laughs> Actually, on the west side, I was on the west side, and just walking home. And it was winter, and just walking home. It's dark,
0: I'm it assuming. Oh, dark.
2: It was nighttime, and it was cold. And I just thought I can't be in that meeting anymore. I well, I was embarrassed because I can. I was. It was audible. Sure. I was sobbing out loud. And. I remember one sister, the one that was Australian, I can't remember her name, but she had been in the nursery and taken care of Jana, in the nursery, you know, during primary time. And her, she was sitting in front of me and she reached back and, and kind of grabbed my hand. I can't even remember her name. She was from Australia. She had red hair too and she loved Jana. But um, I just stood up and walked out. And then I was embarrassed because I felt like I'd ruined the whole meeting for everybody. You know, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. And I just remember walking home and thinking, why does Heavenly Father, why did Heavenly Father save one child and not another? But, you know, now I know that's that happens all the time. You know, Heavenly Father saves one child from being run over by a car and not another one. One child drowns, another one is saved. I think Heavenly Father lets things, lets the earth roll on. Once in a while, I think he does step in, but I think for the most part, he allows things to happen. But I think it's wrong of us to always think, okay, he saved this child because he loved this one. That is where the error comes in. That's broken, yeah. That's broken thinking. Yeah. Yeah, and that he didn't love this one, so he didn't save this one. That's the error. For some reason, maybe that child was meant to live and needed to have the experiences of life, and maybe Janet didn't. The other thing that is hit me so hard now is a few weeks after Janet died, I was over at my mom's and I was crying so hard. and My mom was crying, and Grandpa Linton came in who Grandpa Linton had suffered. When I look back at it, I think, I don't know too many people in my life that suffered the way my dad did. I mean, he had so many illnesses. He had bleeding ulcers. He had cancer of the, you know, kidney. He had kidney cancer when he was a young man. He had Meniere's disease, which is one of the most miserable things on earth because you're constantly dizzy and have vertigo. He had the extreme headaches. I mean, you name it, he had it. And by that, but he went deaf. So he was alone in his head. He had no one to, you know, really communicate with Mm -hmm. in a meaningful way back and forth. All our communications were written out on a pad of paper. You can't really, you know... Bounce
0: ideas off of.
2: Yeah. So he was alone and suffering from depression as well. I mean, how many more things could one man tolerate? And I didn't appreciate it. I didn't... You saw it, but you didn't see it. I saw it, but I didn't see it, because I was a child growing up with it. In fact, after a while, you're just going to go, oh, Grandpa's sick again. Dad's sick again. But anyway, after Janet died, I was crying, and I went into the living room, and he said, why are you crying? He said, it's totally selfish. He said, you should be so happy for Jana. He said, crying is so selfish. He said, she missed out on all the pains and agonies of this world. She's in heaven. She's happy. says, you should be happy for her. You should not be crying. And I got so angry at him. And my mom was angry at him, too. But I thought, two different perspectives. Now I can see his perspective.
0: So here are two incidents where seasoned Christian believers encountered a characteristic of God that they'd previously underestimated. Mind you, both incidents were guarded by their owners. Lewis's grief observed, again, was released under a pseudonym until after his death. My mother's experience is not widely known to those who know her. Anger often accompanies the realization that God's character allows for sinless suffering greater than previously understood. And anger towards God is shameful in a culture
1: of optimism. Admittedly,
0: their stories are not comfortable. A grief observed is rarely if ever quoted. But despite the discomfort these events elicit, they are real-life experiences nonetheless. How many of us have had such bouts with God and have been too ashamed to share them at church? Instead, we sit there, soaking in the idealism, realizing the God being discussed doesn't fully account for our knowledge of his character. Remaining silent in these scenarios is painful, but merely personal. Until you realize you're not the only one that has such experiences, or that will encounter such suffering. Your silence then becomes an omission of information that could very well have strengthened your fellow church members in their times of need.
1: In a situation like this, who would dare speak out? C.S. Lewis.
0: Given his professional position, he was actually duty-bound to search out these depths after their discovery. In fact, if he does not, he knows that all his previous works lose their validity. So, in a way that only Lewis can, he has the unwanted experience, he then bravely tells how it is, unshaded, and he delivers its truths. A
1: genuine hero's journey. In the end, he gives us this quote. I need
0: Christ, not something that resembles him. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And
1: most are offended by the iconoclasm. And blessed are those who are not. He goes on to say,
0: Not my idea of God. But God, in real life. His words and acts are, if we observe closely, hardly ever quite in character. That is, in what we call his character.
1: There's always a card in his hand we didn't know about.
0: And lastly, it continues When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It's not the locked door, it's more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question like, Peace, child. You don't
1: understand. The experience
0: of my mother's has been something I've pondered since first hearing as a child. I've appreciated its example, that blatant good-heartedness can still be susceptible to error. Grace in these situations should be granted generously, yet we should all check our tendencies towards conveniently comfortable words. Many conditioned to comfort have stumbled upon dreadful trials. History has shown that jumping to godlessness is easier than seeking his true character. When dreadful trials hit, and they always do, what is needed is a god of substance
1: not a God of convenient comfort.
0: In reference to her influence on her children, Brooke Romney states, I don't want a cotton candy relationship with my kids. I want
1: something substantial and real.
0: That is precisely the phrase I imagine in God's mind when he looks at us. That is precisely the phrase I imagine in God's mind when he looks at C.S. Lewis and says, he's child. You don't understand. Imagining that God more than anything desires my relationship with him to be one of substance, I've accepted that his intent for my life is not centered around comfort and happiness. And that's not to say that they should not be part of life, but that I should not seek them as a confirmation of his love for me. Likewise, when I seek to understand His character, I should search much deeper than His desire for me to be comfortable and happy. And in fact, like C.S. Lewis and my mother, I should recognize the hardest of times is the very moments God is preparing to teach me most about my relationship with Him, His expectations of me, and His true character.
1: Lastly. Christ rarely spoke
0: without challenging the thoughts of his audience. In doing so, he prepared his disciples for his absence, knowing that the medium of revelation is a dynamic mind founded in the love of God. Therefore, Lindsay and I have committed to speak with intent and substance in church settings. No longer do we offer up the proverbial cotton candy that has become the staple of our services. As a real son and daughter of a real father, we've chosen to evaluate the gospel under the substance of reality. If God wants our relationship with Him to be substantial and real, we should be willing to engage in substantial and real conversations when we enter His house. For those genuinely looking for a relationship of substance with God, the overriding goal of church discourse and by natural association, personal pondering should be to seek proper preparation and adequate strength for the reality in which God has placed us, so that when we are hit by the inevitable trials of dread, we won't be irreconcilably devastated by a change in God's character, but instead
1: stand in awe of his wonders and his knowledge.
0: That concludes the article. This is a reading of an article that was written in the summer of 2021. You can find it in this written form on the thebruzd.com.
1: The article is titled, Church,
0: Ideal or Real, Which Would You Rather? The article's webpage will have three links listed. The first being to Brooke Romney's article, Why We Are Taking the Fun Out of Life. The second will be through Goodreads to C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. On that link will also include several additional quotes not used here in this podcast. The third link will be to the video interview that I conducted with my mom, Ellen Bagley, in October of 2020. That link will be listed on the webpage as Ellen Bagley Tells About a Church Meeting. Not long after the accidental death of her child to better serve the audience. Please write any questions or recommendations to the bruised at gmail.com. That's the podcast for today. I hope it communicates what was needed. We'll be back soon with another conversation with Tommy Truman on relationships. Exciting. Until then, goodbye.